If you've got a Bible, please open up to Matthew chapter 25. If you don't have a Bible, there are some kind of scattered around the worship center on some of these rails. I think most of the texts that I'll read will come up on the center screen behind me or the side screens. Matthew chapters 24 and 25 comprise a sermon that Jesus preaches. We'll learn a little bit more about that sermon in a few minutes. So we're kind of starting in the middle of that, chapter 25, verse 1, right now. So I'll read, starting at verse 1 of chapter 25. Jesus says this. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and they went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there came a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out and meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and then the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. So let's start into one more. There's a second parable in Matthew chapter 25. So here's a new parable starting at verse 14. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and he hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those accounts came, those servants came and settled accounts with them. He who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward, saying, 
Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and then give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is God's word. Amen? Well, let's pull away from that text. I want to try to illustrate a few things by maybe a modern-day story or an imagined kind of a story, which I think will mean something to you, especially if you're married. I want you to think about what happens when you've got a married couple and one spouse goes out of town for, let's say, four days and the other one is left here. What does that look like after four days? It's kind of fun to think about. Um, Maybe for some of you, not so much fun to think about. So let's say that the husband goes out of town. I think the report that the wife would give after four days might go something like this. You know, I missed him a lot. Can't wait for him to get back. But I got a lot done. I got more done than I thought I'd get done. But the real fun part to think of is the reverse thing. What if the wife goes out of town? Then what happens to the apartment or the house? Don't you think it might be something like this? Maybe the guy, the husband, he comes in on day four after working his shift, walks in the door and looks at the place, and he might say to himself, um, Wow. Did some thief break in here and trash the place? I I don't think this could have been me. I know I've left a couple of clothes on the floor and a couple of dirty dishes in the sink, but this certainly couldn't have been me that caused all this mess. Could it be? Of course, the answer is, yeah, it is. Um, Now, over the years, I've tried to do better at this kind of a thing uh, because this happens to me at least once a year. Carla goes either to a nursing conference for several days or she goes back to Wisconsin to visit her Uh, parents and her sisters. So I've gotten better at keeping things clean and working on it every day. There are several things I do not do when Carl is away. For instance, I don't look at pornography. And I try to even put little barriers or boundaries or good accountability measures in place so that I don't have that temptation. Uh, Here's another thing I don't do. I know it would bother her a lot if I spent a lot of money, like a couple hundred bucks, on a new hobby. So I try not to spend money when she's away. (laughs) because she doesn't like that kind of surprise when she gets back. There's a new toy in the house, in other words. So there are things I don't do when she's out of the house. But are there things I should actively be doing? In other words, should I be involved in more than staying out of trouble? Well, of course the answer is yes. And we'll see what that means a little bit in these two parables. One more thing about Carla going out of town. Even though I think I've grown and I'm much better and I do things every day to keep the house clean, I don't think she'd give me an A+, maybe not even an A for a grade when she gets back. 
So I'll confess to you two of my areas of failing when she's away. Um, one, of it is, one of them is that we have four or five potted plants. And they're not in a real obvious room. They're not in the kitchen or the living room or our bedroom. And I forget to water the plants. So when she comes back, she'll always say, you forgot to water the plants again, didn't you? I go, oh, man, yeah. And they're dry, they're wilting, they're about to die, but she revives them. The other area is our cat. So we've got this tuxedo black and white cat. And I remember to clean the cat litter because that would stink pretty bad if I didn't. I also remember to put food in the cat's bowl because the cat would remind me if I didn't do that. That's kind of easy. However, I forget to put water in the cat's water bowl. And we're talking like four days I forget to do this. So fortunately, the cat has an alternate means of getting water, which we won't go into right now. But (laughs) Carla will get home and she'll say, the cat's water bowl is bone dry. That's her expression for it, bone dry, which I think is pretty descriptive. And I'll go, oh, I forgot again. So my sins all center around water or the lack thereof. Um, For (laughs) other husbands in this room, I'm sure you've got other areas that you fail in. But I've been trying to get better at the dishes and clothes kind of a thing and vacuuming the house, that kind of a thing. These two parables are all about when one person goes away or is gone or is expected and then not one person but multiple people that are waiting for that person and what they're supposed to be doing while they wait. So with that said, let's look at uh, Matthew chapters 24 and 25. Um, And we'll start into our notes now as well. This is the last sermon in the book of Matthew, these two chapters, 24 and 25. Some people call this the sermon on the end of the world. I know it sounds kind of ominous, but we'll see why in a minute. They've got a right to call it that. Other people call this the Olivet Sermon or the Olivet Discourse. And here's the reason for that. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus, we'll read about this in a minute, he leaves the temple area and he goes toward the east. Now, immediately to the east of the temple area is countryside. The temple is on the easternmost part of the city of Jerusalem. And so he walks about the length of one football field up a hill called the Mount of Olives. Does a U-turn, sits down, and teaches this sermon to his disciples as they overlook the temple area. So that's their location, the Mount of Olives. So with that said, let's look back at chapter 24, just for a few verses, then we'll get back into our parables in 25. Matthew chapter 24, verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. So again, they walk to the east, up a little hill, do a U-turn, and I imagine that the disciples are pointing out the buildings of the temple because that's the center of Judaism. I mean, that is their direct access to God's presence. Nothing could be more important than the temple. And so I imagine the disciples saying, isn't the temple beautiful? Now, don't look at this now, but later today or this week, look back at Matthew chapters 21, 2, and 3. In those chapters, Jesus is extremely critical of the religious leadership in Jerusalem, specifically the religious leadership over the temple area. 
Jesus basically says, this is a mess. This doesn't honor God. So I imagine the disciples are maybe thinking, Jesus, that temple is beautiful on the outside. I bet you're going to make it beautiful on the inside as well, aren't you? You're here to reform our temple so that it'll be a true place for God's presence. So with that in the disciples' minds, guess what Jesus says? Look at verse 2. I'll read that for you. But he answered them, he is Jesus, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. That's a pretty shocking statement, isn't it? Jesus is saying, this beautiful temple you admire is going to be completely destroyed. So let's look at what the temple looked like in the days of Jesus. The drawing in this picture is facing east, or I should word it this way. If you kind of put your right hand out, that would be toward the east. We're kind of to the east and the south. The temple itself, that kind of little building, although it was pretty big, it just looked little in this context, with the gold gilding on the top, was setting on top of a thing called the Temple Mount area. The Temple Mount is this massive rectangular prism of cut solid block. In fact, the surface of this would be about 23 football fields. That's how large it is. So let's reverse our view. We're going to look at the west side of that whole temple structure now. Again, there's the temple, the back of it, and the south side of it now. If we push out our left hand, we'd be uh, on the, the west side. And that long vertical wall that has a gold, or sorry, a yellow coloring, that's the western wall. Now, of that western wall, there's a part between the two staircases. The staircases have red outline on top of them. That part between the two staircases is called the western or the wailing wall. And here's a picture of what that looks like. What Jesus said was that the temple will be destroyed. That's the building on top of the Temple Mount area. And sure enough, that happened in AD 70. The Jews revolted against Rome. Rome sent legions in. They conquered Jerusalem, pulled down the temple block by block. Jesus is not talking about the whole Temple Mount area. And in fact, this part stands today. It's very holy ground to Jews. They can literally literally walk up and touch rocks that were part of not the temple, but the Temple Mount area. So this is as close as they can get to the glory days of some temple in Jerusalem. Now, remember what Jesus said, not what we're looking at now, but the temple itself is going to be totally thrown down. In response to that statement, the disciples ask two questions. Let's look at them in verse 3. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. So the first thing they ask is, when will these things be? Well, what things are we talking about here? The things from verse 2. What was in verse 2? The destruction of the temple. So one question is, when's the temple going to be destroyed? The second question is, what's the sign of your coming? This is the coming of the Messiah to conquer, to judge the world. We would call it the second coming of Jesus. What's the sign of that coming and of the end of the age? Now, I think the disciples are 
kind of pushing these all up into one question. In other words, they probably think this is the same time frame. Wow, Jesus, if the temple is going to be destroyed, and that's the center of Judaism, that's got to be the end of history as we know it. However, what Jesus does is he takes these two questions and he separates them and treats them as two topics, two different events on God's timeline. There's the destruction of the temple that took place again in AD 70, just a couple decades after the death and resurrection of Jesus. What we call the second coming of Christ, that happened, hasn't happened yet, and here it is in 2013, right? That's still future to our time. So that's pretty much our introduction to Matthew chapters 24 and 25. Maybe I'll tack this in at the end. Scholars are not quite sure where the transition point is. That is where in 24 and 25, Jesus transitions from talking about the temple and it being destroyed into talking about, again, what we would call his second coming. However, they all agree that by chapter 25, our two parables, he's made that transition. He is talking about his coming, not the destruction of the temple. One more interesting thing, he doesn't kind of properly answer the disciples' question. Their question is, what is the sign of your coming? They want to know, when are you coming back? And he answers that by saying, you're not going to know the day or the hour. In fact, he kind of lets them know, don't think timeline. And he answers a different question, one they have not asked. And that different question is, how are you to think and act while you are waiting for the coming of the Messiah? What we would call the second coming. So with that as our context, we're ready for what I'm going to call the parable of the torches. The first parable in Matthew chapter 25. Uh, If you've got a Bible that has little headings over paragraphs or sections, you might see this as the parable of the ten virgins. We might say it's the parable of ten girls or ten maids that are attendants in a wedding. Let's look at verse 1 of Matthew 25. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. So a couple of cultural points here to get our heads more into this story. And this will be in your notes here. These are actually torches and not lamps. There were two Greek words for lamp. What is a lamp? A lamp is something that gives light, right? In a place of darkness. Two different Greek words that are used for lamp. Keep in mind this was before the days of electricity. I think you know that. Also before the days of candles, you might not have known that. So they had wax in Bible days, but candles came about a little bit later. That's more Middle Ages. So what they used for a fuel was olive oil. I mean, you might not know this, but the olive oil you cook with, or maybe you dip bread in it sometimes, it's flammable. And they would get olive oil, put it in a little bowl, put a wick into it, light the wick, the wick would soak up the oil and keep burning. So there's one kind of lamp that is called a household lamp. So let's look at a picture of what that would look like. This is not the one in our parable. The ten girls used a different kind of lamp that we're going to call a torch. Why? This didn't give enough light. We'll learn in just a minute what those maids are going to use that lamp for or that torch. This didn't give enough light. It was fine for a room but not for outside work. 
And second, they're going to be marching through streets in a town or a village. And you can tell if you're holding this kind of a bowl and you're walking, kind of bobbing up and down a little bit, you could easily spill some oil on yourself for the street. So the second Greek word, the one we do have in our text, is a torch. So think of a stick or a pole. One end has cloth wrapped around it. You dip that cloth in olive oil, and then you light it. And you've got more light than what we see in the picture here. And you've got something that's portable. Why did they need that? Because they're marching through a town or a village. What happened in wedding ceremonies was that the last part was this parade or this march. The groom would go to the house of the bride's father. She doesn't have her own place. She doesn't have her own apartment. She lives with her folks. The groom comes at night. They announce his arrival. There are these ten girls that have torches. The bride comes out. She goes with her groom together with the attendants lighting the way in this wonderful parade through the city or village or town streets to the house of the groom's father at which there will be a great banquet or a great feast. So here's the second note to make. So think torches. Second note to make is this. The ten girls are the same in appearance. As best we can tell, the ten girls look the same. They're all going to be dressed nicely, for instance. The text might not say that, but we can assume that. They're all going to look good. The ten girls all know the groom. I mean, they've been selected for some kind of reason. Maybe they're a relative, a cousin. Maybe they're a wife of a best friend, a guy that the groom is best friends with. So they all know the group. They all want to go to the feast. And another similarity, they all slept, didn't they? The, the five that are foolish, they're not foolish because they went to sleep. They all went to sleep. The groom was delayed, so they thought, we'll get some rest. So that can't be why they're, they're foolish. They all claim to know the groom, and they claim some measure of loyalty to him. So what's the difference? Look at verse 2. Verses 2, 3, and 4. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. So what's going on here? Well, if you only had a torch, so these foolish girls, what they're thinking is, okay, I've got to dress nice. Okay, I've got my clothes on. Um, I need a torch. I grab a torch, and they're off. And the torch has these cloths soaked in olive oil. If you've got that and you light it, you've got light for 10 or 15 minutes. So if the groom comes on time and you haven't lit prematurely your torch and let it burn for a while and you get on the road right away, if everything goes according to plan, you'll make it. But what if you light your torch and there are a couple false alarms or you need to see your way around and then all of a sudden you need more oil? You don't have it if you haven't brought it. So I think the ten girls here represent professing Christ followers. Five of them are true Christians. In other words, you peel off the appearance stuff and deep down in their heart, they are loyal to Christ. Christ is their king. They put a little more thought into this duty that they have. They haven't rushed out the door after throwing clothes on and grabbing a torch. They're basically saying, if, maybe just thinking and not saying, 
I want to honor this groom. What does it take to honor him on this night? And to make sure that what's important to him, getting through the streets to his father's house, is important to me as well. Extra oil. That's what I'm going to need if I'm going to honor this groom. The five foolish girls are what we're going to call spiritualized lost people. They might be people that in our time and day go to church. They might be people that live very moral lives. They might be people that have a belief in God or even Jesus on some level. But if you peel away those layers again, what's underneath is not Christ as king. Not my desire is to behold the lamb. All right, let's put this aside and go to the second parable. The second parable is what we're going to call the, ta- the uh, parable of treasures. I was about to say talents because in most of your Bibles, it'll be the parable of the talents. So let me do a little recap of this. We read through it earlier. There's a master. He goes away. He entrusts his property to three servants. So let's read a little bit more about this in verse 15. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. So this thing focuses, this story focuses on talents, which we think mean abilities, but in this parable they mean something else. So in your notes, here's the next part. A talent is money, not an ability. Look at verse 16 and 17 and 18, and we'll see this is true. Starting at verse 16, he who received the five talents went and he traded with them and he made five more. Now, you don't really trade with your abilities. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. He who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. So what is a talent? Well, in Bible days, a talent was a unit of weight. People think it started with the amount of weight that a Roman soldier could carry on his back, not for a really long journey, but for a short journey. So think maybe 75 to 90 pounds. And a talent could be anything. You could have a talent of olive oil, for instance, because it's a weight, a unit of measurement. However, when it's used of currency or money, like we have here, it means gold or more likely silver. So that's a lot of silver, and this is more pure silver, not what we usually get, you know, with jewelry. Here's another way of looking at it so we can put a a dollar price tag on it. A talent was 6,000 of something called a denarius. Denarius was a silver coin equal to one day's wages. So let's do a little calculating here. Um, We'll be conservative. Let's not say somebody's making 20 or 30 bucks an hour. Let's go a little bit above minimum wage, so we'll go 10 bucks an hour. So you've got a blue-collar worker, I guess not unionized, making 10 bucks an hour, right? Um, Workday in Bible days was longer than our day. So not eight hours, more like 10 hours to utilize more light. Um, In fact, that's why the, uh, the virgins are doing this at night. That's why they need torches. People didn't take days off for weddings. They worked their day. It's a long day. They come home, they clean up. Now they're ready for the feast and the procession. So... $10 an hour, we're figuring. 10 hours, that's not too hard, right? $100 a day. So a denarius 
is worth 100 bucks. So don't think, oh, a denarius, that must be like a quarter for us, or maybe it's a silver dollar. No, no, you're way off. That's worth $100 right there. There are 6,000 of those in a talent. That means a talent is worth $600,000. Or, end of the story, a little over half a million dollars. The master is giving the three servants each a massive amount of money, even the one who just gets one talent. Why did God choose money to be used here? Well, here's what one person said, and this is pretty convicting in its wording. Money more than anything else reveals our hearts. So I've got a practical suggestion for you, and I'm only going to make one. When I was looking at these two parables, I thought at the end of the sermon, I'm going to do dozens of practical applications, like get involved, do this, do that. Um, But I really think we should let the parables speak for themselves and let God's spirit guide you as you pray and read through these. What's your analysis of work? I don't mean work as vocation, work in the kingdom of Christ. And how do you view that? But since this is all about money, let me make one suggestion here and then I'll lay off. Here's the suggestion. Sometime this month, month of January, go to someone, not your spouse, not a family member, but someone you trust, and ask them to look at your finances. All of it. I mean, open up the books. So you say to this person, here are my bills. Here's my income. Here's my debt. Here's my budget, if there is one. And by the way, here are my habits. This is what I do with money. I'll bet the vast majority of us in this room have never done that. Maybe we've asked a family member and shown them one piece of our financial pie, so to speak, and said, what do you think I should do with this? 100 bucks here. But I'll bet we've never done that. And ask them, when you look at this, is any part of this investing? I mean investing in people, investing in things that matter for eternity. Or do you not see any investing anywhere? Is this just survival mode or am I spending all my money on toys? All right, let's put money aside. Look at one more part of this parable. Look at verses 24 through 27. So verse 24. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So in this parable, the master represents God. Now, part of our question is, does he represent God in all parts of the parable or just in some or most parts of the parable? More on that in a minute. The three servants are just like the ten girls in the previous parable. They're all going to profess to be servants. We'll learn that two really are servants. One is not when you peel off those outer layers. But our present task is this servant with the one talent, he thinks the master is wicked. So this is a little bit uncomfortable for us, right? If the master represents God, um, is the master in the parable wicked? Meaning he's like an Ebenezer Scrooge. He's trying to squeeze money out of places where he doesn't really put investments. 
Well, here's the next part of our outline. I hope to prove to you that God is not wicked in this parable. Neither is he weak, though. He is a strong master who holds people accountable. So let's go back to that thought of the servant. The servant is saying that his master is cold-hearted, tight-fisted, harsh, ruthless, and he did stuff out of fear. Well, one of two things are going on here. Option one, this is contrast and not comparison. So here's what I mean by that. If we take the view of contrast, then we're saying the master in the parable really is wicked. However, what Jesus is saying is this. If on the earthly plane where we live, there's a servant who out of fear whether he invests money or hides it in the ground, out of fear does something with the money because the master is bad, cruel, harsh, how much more should we as Christians, out of gratitude, not fear, serve a good and generous father in heaven? That's one option, that there's not an exact parallel. The master doesn't always represent God. Here's the one I like a little bit better. second option is that the servant is not being truthful. That the servant is blame-shifting, casting blame on the master, not himself. If the servant were truthful, he'd say this. You gave me one talent, and I did nothing with it. You know, I not only deserve to not be called a good and faithful servant, I don't deserve to be called your servant at all. I'm not a servant. But the servant doesn't say that, does he? The servant says, you're kind of wicked and harsh and cruel. You're kind of bleeding pennies out of people when they don't have pennies to give. And that's why I went and hit it in the ground. Now, I think there's evidence that the master is actually good and generous and not what the servant is saying. Look at verse 28. The master says, take the talent away from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. Well, let's backtrack. Who has the ten talents? That was the first servant. He was given five. He made five more. He has ten total. So the master is saying, keep the ten, and I'll give you an eleventh as well. So first off, agree with me that the master does not come back after his journey and say, I'm back. Give it to me. You had five, made five more. Give me it. It's mine. You put one in the ground. That's bad, but give it to me. Now, I know what you might say is, Ron, yeah, but that doesn't prove he's a good master. Maybe that first servant is so good at making money, the master says, keep doing it. I want more, more, more. You've got 10, even 11 now. Make that into 22, but it's all mine when it's said and done. He is asking the first two servants to keep doing what they're doing, to keep investing his property. But here's why I don't think that's the case. These first two servants end up becoming rich. And here's the evidence. Actually, there are two or three pieces of evidence, but here's the main one. If you look at verse 21 and 23, the master, when he commends the first two servants, he says this, enter into the joy of your master. Now, here's what that word joy would have meant to those first two servants. It was often used in the material world for things like a banquet, A banquet was called an event or a time of joy. 
Where did we just read about a banquet? With the ten girls. Five of them made it in, five didn't. So here's what's happening. These first two servants, when they hear joy, they are not thinking only emotion. In fact, it doesn't make much sense if it is. They're not thinking, let's pretend the master is wicked. They're not thinking this. The master is telling me to go make more money, but it's all his. I don't get any of it. The master is saying is this makes me really happy that you're making a lot of money for me. So share in my happiness. It doesn't make any sense. The servants don't get anything from that. Yeah, they got a roof over their head and food on the table, but why would they share in the joy of their master when they get nothing? Rather, this Greek word really has a material element to it as well as an emotional. And what the master is saying is, I am going to share my world, emotion and physical, with you. The first two servants become wealthy. You might say, how wealthy? We don't know. And that's not the point. It's not the point of parables to be 50 verses long and to tell you exactly what their cut or their percentage was. It's enough for us to hear, enter into the joy of your master. And to know that, again, that is not just emotions. The master in the parable is the opposite of an Ebenezer Scrooge. He's a very generous master. So what do these two parables teach us about the Christian life? Well, let me make a couple of suggestions here. And here's a little two-part slogan that you could right into your bulletin. Here's the first part. Faith does not equal faithfulness. We might be tempted to look at these two parables and say, hey, we need to do more. This is what pleases God. I need to be more active in church. I need to do more stuff for my neighbor. I need to give more money to the poor. That's how I get in a right standing with God. And the very opposite is true. In the New Testament and in these parables, What does the New Testament tell us? We cannot by our own efforts please God. Only one man is righteous, and only one man can pay the penalty of sin. That is God the Son, the Son of God, Jesus. We trust in him, and that is where faith comes from. What these parables really teach is the second part of this slogan. Faith results in faithfulness. What these parables teach is, by our actions we show what's in our heart. The actions don't lead to the faith, they reflect our faith. And I don't know that the standards for us acting and doing and being engaged in the earth are are super high. Look at this third servant in that second parable. The master didn't insist that the third servant double that one talent. If you read the text, the master just said, you should have at least invested it with bankers. Let them do some stuff with it. Yeah, they're going to take a huge cut. But basically the master is saying this, you can't do nothing. Nothing on the outside reflects nothing on the inside. Or in the case of the five foolish girls, yeah, they did something. They dressed up and they grabbed a torch. But the critique there was, if you really seek to honor the groom you'll sit down and really think about what's happening. And what's valuable to him is going to be valuable to you. He won't look at this as just a duty. Dress up, grab my torch, good to go. Let me go back to that opening illustration again. Put maybe one or two more twists on it. So, for you guys who are husbands... Let's pretend your wife is gone for seven days. 
what would happen if on day four, she comes back and surprises you? I don't mean she calls you and says, I'm going to be at the airport in six hours. I changed my flight. I'm going to come home early. She walks through the door, surprises you. What would your home look like if that happened? Or here's another twist, a second and final twist on it. Let's say your wife is gone for four days, and it really is four days. And you know that at this certain time, on the fourth day, you're going to drive to the airport and pick her up. Are you the kind of guy who, two hours before you get in your car, go through a whirlwind of cleaning activity? And you're, you're throwing stuff in the washer, and you're trying to cycle through dozens of dishes and pots and pans. And you're scooping out the kitty litter that is piled up for four days, spraying the house to make it smell a little bit better. Is that what kind of a guy you are? If so, and we're all going to be on this spectrum somewhere. I told you, I don't get an A on this kind of a thing. But if you're doing nothing while the wife is away, I think you should question whether you have, or to what extent you have, a biblical love for your wife. Think about it for a minute. If you're the guy that does all the cleanup an hour or two before she comes home, what's motivating you to serve your wife? Probably one of two things. Either A, avoid the wrath of the wife. Right? Fear. That's one motivation. Or B, you want to have some cuddle time with the wife later that night, and you know that ain't going to happen if she comes home and the house is a mess, which is a very selfish motivation. Here's the point. When you love someone, you love the things they love. I'm not talking 10 things out of 10 things. There are some things the wife is going to like that the husband's going to say, sorry, can't go down that road, and vice versa. But there are some things you won't love in your natural self that you grow to love because you love your wife. And similarly, in these parables, there are things, there are things important to the groom or important to the master that if a girl is truly an attendant at the wedding or servant is a true servant for the master, they will be a part of, invest in, be passionate about because they love the groom or the master. Pray with me, please. God, I pray you'll help us to see if if some of us in this room are the five foolish girls if we dress up to go to church, maybe we're active in some measure, but deep down, we do not say, Christ is king of my life. I want him to be king of all parts of my life. God, help us as we read about activity and investing, help us not to trust in investing in activity. Help us to trust in Christ. And so, Father, if there are people here who say, well, I'm super involved in church and in helping the poor, so I must be doing well. God, if they trust in that, help them to see that the very opposite is the case. Maybe none of that means anything to you. Father, I pray that you'll help us to work while we wait for Christ, his second coming. And I pray that you'll help us to wait while we're working. Some of us are not waiting We don't look expectantly and longingly for the second coming of our Savior. We're busy working. We don't have that passion to be in the literal presence of Jesus. Help us to read through this passage, these parables, 
later today and this week to worship Jesus through reading and responding. And God, may we sing now from the depths of our hearts. In Jesus' good and great, great, great name, amen.